Clyde and Richard Bryce Smith. I'm David Bank. I'm Brian Walsh, and this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. On today's show, a growing awareness of climate risk is beginning to stir the capital markets. Will investors move fast enough? The alarm bells are in the daily headlines with hurricanes, fires, floods, and droughts. But are the real risks of the coming climate emergency already priced into the market? Or are even bigger and unpriced shocks still ahead? Imogen, the capital markets are all-knowing, right? So haven't they already priced in the risk of climate disaster? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not and that they have. There's this irony here that you are starting to see asset owners, money managers, other stakeholders, think tanks talk about climate change and things like stranded asset risk. This idea that there is already so much fossil fuel that the energy companies have on their books that we can't possibly burn or use all that fossil fuel and not reach beyond the two degree scenario. Right. And so that there's a risk that we need to transition to, to a clean energy economy and that the energy companies are exposed to that. This went from being sort of a fringe idea five years ago to something that is pretty broadly accepted and is being widely discussed in the capital markets. And that's a good thing. But the problem is, is that what you are hearing in a lot of cases is, well, therefore, you know, this is already you priced it that people recognize this as a risk and the markets will take care of it. And that, you know, as something becomes uneconomic, you know, rational market theory says that it will basically sort of get smaller and smaller and disappear. A lot of people don't think that's happening, right? They That they see this increased conversation, but that we're not actually seeing a reduction in investment. We're not actually seeing the markets don't are not set up to recognize and think about risks that they haven't experienced before. And so the idea that somehow the capital markets will be all knowledgeable and all, all seeing isn't really true. And that you're going to end up in a scenario like you did with something like the subprime mortgage crisis, where even though, you know, alarm bells were ringing, there was still a huge economic impact. So David, what's this mean for investors and how should they react to this idea of an impending climate disaster that hasn't been accurately priced into the market? Well, I, I do agree that risk is the driver here. The opportunity side is also there, but it's not seeming to move the needle. So the numbers from 2018 is about $354 billion of um sort of clean energy and, and low carbon investments tabulated by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And that number, frankly, has been flat since about 2015. I think it might even be lower than 2015. We were supposed to be into the you know mass mobilization of the capital markets for the great clean energy future by now. And to be fair, you can buy more renewables with the same amount of money because the price has been falling. So the installed base of renewables is very dramatically growing, but the amount of capital is not really growing. We need about six times that to get up to about two trillion to, you know, even hit that that two degree or, or certainly the 1.5 degree scenario. So we are not now on the track to tackle the climate emergency in anything like the scale it needs to be tackled by. Therefore, I would say, you know, the markets have not priced it in because there's bad, <laughs> bad shit coming down. So, um, uh, so, so there's, you know, we can get into why that's the case, but uh, it's going to be risk, I think, that drives it, um, as it turns out, not the upside necessarily. And, you know, you know, I think that's where we're at now. And if you think about 
about it, the two things are complementary, right? The, the more we continue not to finance the clean energy transition at the rate that we need to do it, the more the risks increase, right? And the more we're exposed, we're likely to be exposed to sudden shocks. I think that's right, just to, to say, I think the soft landing scenario maybe, you know, has, we, you know, passed us by. We're now into the, you know, hard landing scenario. And and that's what I think the capital markets in general is having a hard problem with, right? That, and this isn't even just capital markets. It's, it's, it's such a big problem to grapple with that it's very difficult for, and it seems sort of very, ex, even today, it still seems existential and abstract. And so individuals have a problem with grasping, you know, what the climate crisis looks like, let alone, you know, Wall Street traders who, for the most part, you know, are not experts in any of these topics. And it comes in in ways that, you know, it's not, I mean, obviously pipelines and, and oil and, and natural gas and whatnot are the obvious stranded assets, as you said, but um, r- real estate and um, water infrastructure and, and other things are also, you know, can be at risk of being stranded assets. And so, it, as you say, it's, as people start well, digging into the risks in their portfolio, they're finding them all over the place. Well, I think, you know, the financial services industry in general is an interesting one, right? So if you looked at sort of, when you look at like low carbon indices and portfolios, right? They tend to have, for example, an over-allocation to financial services companies, healthcare and tech companies to, to sort of balance out their portfolio. It, it's obvious that the financial services industry is likely to be at risk of climate change because of its own exposure to the energy economy, right? So those second and tertiary risks are not necessarily being taken into consideration in how we today construct low income and sorry low carbon and carbon transition portfolios. Well, let me just ask you: Can I just ask a question to Imogen in your in, in your experience of just sort of diligencing these things? In the sense that if you took something like the Task Force on Climate Related Disclosures uh, recommendations, which is this you know emerging bible of accounting for climate risks that Michael Bloomberg and the Church of England have. I'm sorry, the Bank of England have uh, <laughs> have, have cooked up um, as a way for co- companies to, to take stock of the two degree scenario and, and, and all that. If you did that to your stranded assets point, wouldn't the, you know, lots of book value of, you know, major corporations be written down in a way that would be a shock to the capital markets that would make 2008 look like child's play? I mean, that's that's kind of the point I'm making, right, is it would be. And to be fair, I think that is kind of the point that TCFD is making, that that we need to take that level, we need to use that level of risk analysis, but precisely for that reason and precisely because, you know, the capital markets is still, you know, energy is a huge component of the capital markets. We don't look at it that way, and it's almost impossible for us to do so. Just in the same way, again, we saw the subprime mortgage crisis coming down the pipe, and we didn't do anything about it. Right. This transition to this low-carbon economy requires, uh, you know, a couple different aspects, right? So, David, as you put there, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that we need six times the rate of current investment into low-carbon investments, uh, but that's only one piece of it. We also need to make a transition of carbon intensive industries right now. And there's a recent report that's put out by the Climate Finance Leadership Initiative, which is 
chaired by Michael Bloomberg and has several asset he managers pops up and asset owners. He does. Uh, and, and they, they think that we do need to make this major transition, uh, to the low carbon economy, but also retiring high carbon assets as well. And so it's, it's beyond the new investments. We need to transition previous investments that have been made in the infrastructure of carbon intensive sectors like the power industry, the industry industry and transportation. And the financing decisions of the past have, in a sense, locked us in to carbon emissions well into the future. So how do we make this transition into a, a low carbon future if we have locked in committed emissions from existing fossil fuel intensive assets. Well, that's what we're talking about. Those are those become stranded assets and eventually they have to get written down. And that's why the, a lot of these analyses, as, as, you, as you point out, Brian, they, they, there's two kind of basic buckets of, of climate risk. One is the actual physical risk. We, we talked about, you know, the hurricanes and the, the low lying, you know, real estate and whatnot. The other is this transition risk. And it's literally the, as you say, mostly a financial services risk as, you know, the as people's books, in effect, get upended by this new accounting. I think that this question of carbon lock-in is an important one. It's actually something that I was doing a lot of research into a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's this idea that we're, we're basically, we're continuing to build the fossil fuel infrastructure, even as we recognize that over the next decade, we need to transition to a renewable economy, right? So we're still financing the building of pipelines today, which when you think about it, makes no sense. The problem is that, you know, for example, as a long-term institutional investor, you would think, well, that's a bad idea. Knock it off, right? Hmm. But a lot of the investors making those investments in that infrastructure are not taking on long-term risk. They're taking on you know, bond risk, or they're taking on project finance risk, or they're taking on private equity risk, and the duration of that private equity portfolio is only 10 years, and they're in, I don't know, let's say the third or fourth year of that portfolio, right? So there's a misalignment between when those kind of infrastructure investments are going to become unprofitable, and how they are profitable today. And in something like when you think about, you know, energy independence in the US and, you know, President Trump, you know, pushing for more pipelines, you know, more natural gas, then that can be for an institutional investor, a very profitable, profitable investment over the duration of that investment, even as we recognize the long term stranded asset risk. And that's a real problem with trying to achieve this clean energy transition. We're discussing that in our family, actually. We need a new car. Our cars are both like 12 and 14 years old. But I don't want to buy another gas-powered car because it's, it locks me in for another 12 or 14 years of, of buying gas. And I want to buy all electric, but, you know, we're not really able to buy a Tesla. So um, we're, we're waiting for, you know, this new energy economy to sort of come down to our, you know, car buying budget. <laughs> David, what about public transportation and bicycles? You mean change my lifestyle, Brian? I mean, it's just a just a thought, and 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 because uh, as we all know that if we only have uh, personal choices in the conservation space, then that will lead to the systemic change that we all need. We don't want to get involved with public policy. Ah, it make it's all because it's all individual agency here. Um, um, yes, you should feel bad about your personal car choices, um, as opposed to the regulatory environment in which you find yourself being an individual agent. We we do we do we do walk a lot, so um, we're doing our part or, or trying to. 
But to Imogen's point, you know, it is an institutional question at some level. I mean, my 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 our family's budget is not going to make the, the the difference here, unfortunately. Um, so the big, you know, super tankers, as we said are starting, as we said, to think more long-term and they do want, in fact, this report you mentioned is effectively those super tankers of institutional investors saying what they want to see so that they can deploy their hundreds of billions and trillions. And they want, you know, a, a full scale effort that involves all those levers, as you said. So it's public sector, you know, and frankly, it's subsidies. It's de-risking of big energy projects so that they can lay in, you know, big solar fields across, you know, in, in, in Africa and, and what have you. It's 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 all kinds of blended finance from development folks. It's helping make um, a lot of it is emerging market finance, which is, you know, lagged, even though, you know, developing world has has made a big shift to renewables. So there's lots of things that are a function of kind of a global alignment and a political leadership um, to, to have the world believe that we are headed towards that low carbon future and then have the capital markets align themselves. And that, but you know, my, as you know, is problematic, to say the least. My problem in part is, you know, one of the things that's going to be required here is for investors to leave money on the table, right? That, in a sense, if we are going to transition at the speed to, to a clean and renewable economy at the speed that is required, it's going to require Wall Street and asset allocators to not make investments that are going to be profitable. Isn't that a, you know, you can have it, um, what's the expression? You know, you know, either they're going to have it, either they're going to make that choice voluntarily or they're going to have that choice made for them involuntarily. Like, so PGE yeah, bankruptcy so a- or G- GE, wind, you know, gas turbine write downs or there's enough shocks accumulating that eventually they'll say, ah, this is not something we get to choose to forego you know, uh, returns. We are going to run for the hills before we lose what we already have. Right, but what about the the old adage? As long as the music is playing, you've got to dance. And as that's long as the there's money to be leadership, made, that's the that's the political leadership to change the tune, just to keep your metaphor going. Right, right. They, they, so, but in absent political leadership to change the tune, uh, the music is playing, and there is plenty of money to be made from carbon intensive industries. There's plenty of money to be made by Wall Street investors in financing the building of new coal power plants. Probably and, not coal power plants so much. Well, maybe not yes. coal power, but, but carbon intensive yeah. assets that will lock in carbon emissions for decades into the future. Well, I mean, you uh, know, Brian, and, you're just queuing up for, you know, what has to be a major political and popular mobilization. I mean, thank God for the the the, the school kids and, and the young people who are marching, you know, this week. And and um, thank God for you know voters next year who have, might have a say in this. So um, uh, I, I totally agree. It's got it's got to be a change in direction. Right, and so it's the mobilizing private capital is necessary, but perhaps maybe not sufficient because absent a broader political realignment and regulatory framework that uh, makes it cost prohibitive, either from a regulatory standpoint, you just can't do those projects, or from a carbon tax or for some other kind of cost to make these projects unattractive, that requires not just mobilization of private capital, but a broader political movement that yeah, it, it that requires- we don't see. We see green shoots of, but uh, I, I, we don't see right now an overwhelming uh, coalition uh, arguing for this. Let me lay out the, a little bit of a po- more of a positive spin, which is Europe 
is on the verge of, of enacting its whole sustainable business framework. You know, it's been in the works for many years and lots of commissions and, and, and reviews and comments and whatnot. But it's moving towards becoming, uh, you know, regulatory law in the, in the European community for uh, very strict carbon and other sustainability reporting all up and down the corporate, you know, supply chains and everything. And if you want to do business in Europe, you're going to have to adhere to this new reporting regime. Um, and, you know, if you're, you know, everybody does business in Europe, so you'll effectively be reporting, I think, global numbers um, uh, to, 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 you know, just to make it, you know, comprehensive. So there is kind of the workings of the machinery, you know, moving forward to assess this risk that Imogen was talking about. And as we said at the top, the question is, does all that machinery, you know, grind fast enough for the change to happen in time for the uh, worst effects to be avoided. Um, that's really where we're at. So Imogen, <laughs> does does all that machinery grind no, together? I mean, is it, it doesn't, is it right? That's, or... that's the obvious fear and the obvious danger, right? And so then the question becomes, okay, can we, what is the, what is the opportunity cost, right? Like, can we find investment opportunities that can shift like result in the changes that we need to see more quickly, right? Are, are we hoping that sort of technology and innovation and the financing of some of these massive infrastructure projects will make up for the fact that the machine just just can't move fast enough? Isn't it a client demand? Isn't it an asset owner demand thing? If we're if we're really thinking of it, isn't it a you know, combination of the, you know, Norwegian sovereign fund and the global government pension in, uh, insurance uh, investment fund in Japan, uh, the world's largest. And um, even a lot of, as you say, these oil and gas companies, you know, moving their own investments out of, 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 of fossil fuels and into renewables. I mean, isn't it, there's not, there's not the, the, the world banking and finance industry doesn't, isn't opposed to financing renewables. If the, if, if the money wants to do it, they'll find a way, no? Yes, uh, you know, life will find a way, and and there's and, fees. And there's fee, there's a lot a of fees for the bankers in all of these deals, right? But so I think what you're asking for is essentially self-regulation of the capital markets by large institutional asset owners and asset managers. Well, in the absence of the political leadership, I mean, I'm saying, I'm saying that if the money's moving anyway, then for 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 starters, the political leadership will tends to follow as well as all of these mechanisms. Of finance. What I'm mostly arguing about is that these so-called obstacles are always are only obstacles if there's not capital, you know, demanding that they be overcome. Once there's ca that capital, then you know the bankers and everybody else will, will 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 spring into action and, and overcome all of these supposed obstacles. I I agree with you up to a certain point, but I also think that's an oversimplification of the capital markets and sort of <laughs> the dem <laughs> surprisingly right <laughs> and. And the, the demand and the nature of the demand that you're seeing from, say, these large institutional allocators, right? So, yes, on the one hand, you know, the Japanese pension plan, you know, the large U.S. institutional asset owners are saying, we want to do more in this space. Um, that doesn't, A, you know, are they really going to take off on the risk of, like, investing in a renewable project in Tanzania or something, Right. Prob left to their own devices, probably not. But that's to why that's what that's where all this good financial engineering and blended finance and you know, you know, loss guarantees and things can come into play. And you can t 
tinker at the end edges of those risk return calculations and then bring the and then that does bring in uh, more institutional capital at least the theory at least in theory right and building on that Amazon, i think your your uh the tone that you were implying there is that uh, that they would see these, uh, they would have a bias against these investments because uh, if it's a renewable energy project in Mozambique, then it must not be profitable for them in the long term. And I think that there, that's a, that's one of these biases that I think can be overcome and can be overcome with, with, can, with, with the track record and with demonstrations of, uh, of that these can be attractive returns for uh, these asset allocators. Yeah. And that's, that's, but that's why we need the leadership to make all those, you know, initiatives and financing, you know, you know, blended See, this financing. is where you guys lose me, though, right? Like, it's like, where am I? Explain to me where in my asset allocation uh, a renewable energy company in Mozambique is going to sit. It's going to be in a project finance portfolio for alternative, you know, infrastructure and, and infrastructure investments that have, you know, reliable cash flows paid for by. Uh, 20 year, you know, power purchase agreements, the, the, the risk in that one is, you know, is that public utility in some African country with, you know, maybe, yeah, you know, poor credit ratings, is that a good counterparty for that particular, you know, 20 year agreement. But again, those are the very particular kinds of risk factors that can be, you know, get, you know, you know, mitigated with guarantees and, and, and risk first loss protections and all kinds of things that uh, bankers know very well how to do. Exactly. So bankers are working on this. Allocators are not, right? Nobody has, most large institutional investors don't have, don't look at the world that way. And so when they're talking about ESG and climate risk in their portfolio, this, they're not seeing the solution as, oh, I'm going to go make a renewable investment in Mozambique. They're not asking for those investments. Their risk return profile is very different from that. And so there's a mismatch between even sort of potentially what some of these projects coming online are and what the demand from, you know, your friend, the Japanese pension plan wants to be investigated. Well, this is a this is this actually takes us back to the top of the hour, which was are these risks and opportunities truly priced in? Because there is a emerging argument that says when the recession finally hits that one of the things that will be resilient are basic human needs in emerging markets where people are still going to want to, uh, you know, have electric electric light at night for their kids to study or, or shops to stay open or, or what have you, refrigeration, and that, in fact, that's going to be resilient to the coming downturn. So maybe when the proverbial shit hits the fan, you know, these things will start looking better. Maybe. <laughs> okay, I, I think we're going to uh, officially list Imogen as skeptical on that one. Uh, but that's going to do it for her. Our last episode. word is maybe. It's, it's maybe. Yeah, she's a, a, a solid maybe. <laughs> no, that was a solid, yeah, let's wait and see. All right, but give me credit for the old college try here. <laughs> we, we always do, that. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen Rose Smith. Thank you. And thank you, David Bank. Thank you both, as always. And special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and, yes, prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in some sense of the word next time.